look at the periodic table, <laughs> over a hundred elements there to deal with, and you will find the whole periodic table in these nanomaterials. Welcome to Nanomatters, the podcast that explores specific examples of nanotechnology. I'm Lisa Friedersdorf, Director of the National Nanotechnology Coordination Office. Here with me today is Mike Coachella, Emeritus University Distinguished Professor at Virginia Tech and Laboratory Fellow at Pacific Northwest National Lab. Mike studies the intersection of nanoscience and the earth. So Mike, with respect to nanomaterials in the environment, what are the differences between natural, incidental, and engineered nanomaterials? Right. Natural, incidental, and engineered nanomaterials. You know, Earth is quite the chemist and physicist. Nature makes a load of <laughs> these materials in the atmosphere, in the oceans, on the continents, wherever you go, even deep in the Earth, nature will be making these nanomaterials. Incidental materials are made, let's say, by accident. You don't intend to make them. But let's say humans build an engine and they start the engine and out the tailpipe come nanomaterials. Well, the purpose of the engine was not to make nanomaterials, but there they're coming out of your tailpipe. And then we have engineered nanomaterials. These are nanomaterials that are made quite on purpose to do the technology of the 21st century, basically. And nanotechnologists have perfected many, many, many thousands of well-designed nanomaterials that are in thousands and thousands of products and are creating billions and in fact trillions of dollars of economy. So those are the three types of nanomaterials. All three of them are found all around the earth. And it might be interesting to your audience to know which of those three are most common on earth. And it turns out the winner is natural nanomaterials. The earth makes far more nanomaterials than either we can incidentally, or we do on purpose engineering. We have estimated nanomaterials moving on the earth, whether it's you know dust blowing in a windstorm or particles in the ocean moving from one part of the ocean to the other, or particles in a river flowing to the ocean or particles in soils. You're talking about 1 million metric tons. So when you talk about the earth producing these naturally occurring nanoparticles, what are they made of? It's an enormous variety, both inorganic, organic, and mixtures of the two. So look at the periodic table, <laughs> over a hundred elements there to deal with, and you will find the whole periodic table in these nanomaterials. Now, obviously, generally, you're going to be making nanomaterials of the most common elements. Biologically speaking, of course, carbon, hydrogen, nitrogen, oxygen, phosphorus, and so on. In the inorganic world, on the surface of the Earth, you're going to be looking at oxygen, silicon, aluminum, you know, the alkaline, alkaline Earth elements to make most of the minerals. How does nanoscience help you better understand how the Earth works? Whatever earth process you can suggest to me, earthquakes, windstorms, how the oceans circulate, I can tell you how nano is involved. So there's no end to finding application to nanoscience and technology, not just for your building your iPhone or getting the next great medical diagnostic, but also understanding anything you want about the earth. So I'm going to take up that challenge, and I'd like to ask you, 
How is nanoscience involved in earthquakes? Well, think of, I don't know, go to your favorite fault. Let's say the San Andreas Fault in California. It is a part of the plate boundary between the North American tectonic plate and the Pacific tectonic plate, which is most of the Pacific Ocean. And so you've got these two massive plates that are a couple of tens of kilometers thick that are literally sliding on the asthenosphere of the Earth, uh, which is what's below the plate. An earthquake happens when there's no movement between those two plates, but a lot of stress is building up because they do want to move. They're just sort of locked together. And then all of a sudden, the locking force is exceeded by the overall need for these plates to move. And they will. Eventually, that locking mechanism will fail. The plates will move very quickly in a very short amount of time. And there's your earthquake. OK, so where does nano have in the world to do with that? Well, if you go along the San Andreas Fault in a number of places, you will see ground material, just like if you took a mortar and pestle or you took two rocks and you put some powder between the rocks and you started grinding away, those particles would become smaller and smaller and smaller as they're ground between those two hard objects. And the same thing happens between two plates at the fault zone. You are grinding the earth that's right at that fault zone. So you can go along the San Andreas Fault and dig in the dirt and you will find nanomaterials, nanoparticles that used to be, well, they still are minerals. The minerals are ground down to nano size because of this grinding between these two massive plates. And you can think of those tiny, tiny nano minerals as ball bearings, basically, that the two plates can slide past each other even more easily because of this dust, this nano dust that is between the two plate boundaries. And so earthquake scientists and engineers are now studying the nano gouge dust that is present to understand how they affect the movement of faults. They are showing that these nanomaterials in the fault zones do make a big difference in how earthquakes work. Mike, I just want to thank you again for joining us this afternoon and give you the opportunity to share any closing thoughts that you might have with our listeners. We have to pay attention to science now more than ever. And the reason is because as the planet continues to populate, and pretty soon we'll be over 8 billion and we'll be at 9 billion and 10 billion before we know it, the science of keeping the planet healthy and accommodating to the human population and to the population of all living things becomes even more critical. So how do we know how to control the coronavirus that we're dealing with now? How do we know how to keep greenhouse gases out of the air so the planet does not continue to heat up? How do we know how to keep water clean? What happens when you run out of water? Well, I can tell you, we're not going to be here. To keep up with the evolving planet, uh, how do we keep up? And we keep it up through science and technology. I think the scientists and the technologists of the 21st century get it. They understand that you can't just do science for the sake of doing science anymore. We have to put our science toward things that we desperately need in the future, like understanding climate change and sustainable development and how energy will be produced in the future and 